Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Our Time on Earth. Rediscover life on Earth through immersive artworks that reveal our incredible, irreplaceable natural world. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. In 1932, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis wrote a dissenting opinion that contained a phrase that quickly became one of the axioms of American governance. Quote, It is one of the happy incidents of the federal system that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory, Brandeis wrote, to try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Well, Brandeis had crystallized the idea that states are a laboratory of democracy. And he closed his dissent with this flourish, quote, if we would guide by the light of reason, we must let our minds be bold, end quote. Well, 90 years later, political scientist Jake Grumbach asked, what kind of experiments with democracy are the states running now? So he developed a democracy index based on a long list of metrics. And with that index, he graded every state in the union. I did a statistical analysis of electoral democracy in the U.S. states going back to the year 2000. And these 51 different variables I use measure the overall quality of electoral democracy, that is, do majorities of voters get what they want out of their state government or not? And how balanced are legislative districts for each party? And how costly or burdensome is it to vote? And what I find is over the past 20 years, some number of states, including Ohio, Alabama, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Tennessee, have experienced pretty significant Democratic backsliding. What that means is, Elections and voting became less accessible over this time period, and especially legislative districting became more imbalanced, advantaging one party over the other. In other words, he found that Brandeis's cherished laboratories of democracy could be turning into laboratories against democracy which is the title of Grumbach's latest book. And according to Grumbach, Tennessee is a standout. In the year 2000, Tennessee scored below average on his State of Democracy Index. But by 2018, Tennessee was dead last. The states who, whose democracy had slid back the most. Well, why? Grumbach says it starts with the Republican Party's supermajority in the state legislature. They drew highly gerrymandered districts that really advantaged the Republican Party and Republican voters against especially more urban Tennessee voters. And that created a greater disconnect between the policy outcomes that the Tennessee government passed and what Tennessee citizens really wanted, as we know from public opinion polls. And finally, Tennessee also engaged in what are called voter suppression policies that don't tend to really completely eliminate the vote for people, but they do make voting more burdensome, especially if you're in one of the cities in Tennessee, like Memphis or Nashville, you are much more likely to wait in a long line to vote than in other states. 
This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and that was Jake Grumbach, author of Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics. And Grumbach's analysis helps us launch today's show because we're going to really focus on Tennessee and whether state governance there has crossed a different line that Louis Brandeis wrote about back in that 1932 dissent when he noted that, quote, the action of the state must be held valid unless clearly arbitrary, capricious, or unreasonable. Well, let's start with Blaze Ganey. He's political reporter for Nashville Public Radio, and he's with us from Nashville. Blaze, welcome to On Point. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So first of all, how can you briefly describe the current makeup of the Tennessee uh, state legislature? Yeah, so it's a Republican-dominated uh, supermajority um, in the House, there are 99 seats and they control 75 of them. Democrats have 24. And in the Senate, um, they also have a majority. I can't remember the number off the top of my head right now, but um, roughly over 75 percent. Mm, OK, so there is this. Uh, that's why the, there's a clear supermajority there for the GOP. Now, you've actually also covered uh, what Florida as well, um, and they're quite uh, interesting uh, state legislature. There uh, yes. is that different, or from what you see in Tennessee? Uh, it, it's very different. Um, I mean, Republicans are still in the majority, but they don't have a supermajority. So I think uh, they sort of have to work across the aisle a little bit more to get uh, certain bills passed that take you know two thirds of the vote. Okay, so so Tennessee is even less than that with their supermajority. Exactly. Okay, so just describe to me then briefly what are some of the things that the supermajority uh, in the GOP supermajority in Tennessee has allowed it to do in the state assembly? Well, they can put amendments on the ballot, you know, all by themselves. They don't need a Democratic vote to help them do that. They can, uh, since they chair all the committees, they don't have to hear the Democratic bills that are proposed. And they also can sometimes just call people out of order and move on to the next person if they don't, you know, want to hear uh, different thoughts or different opinions from what they already believe. Okay. Well, you've actually helped us uh, dig through uh, uh, many, many hours of debate uh, in uh, in the Tennessee State Assembly here to find some uh, indicative moments of how uh, things things are run and how governance is done uh, in the state here. So here's one moment. This is state Republican Representative Paul Sherrill back in January speaking during a debate uh, about a bill regarding uh, health care for trans people. Our preacher would say, if you don't know what you are, a boy or girl, male or female, just go in the bathroom and take your clothes off and look in the mirror and you'll find out You'll find out what you are. If you look in the mirror, you'll find out. That's Tennessee Republican State Representative Paul Sherrill in January. Now, more recently, in March, there was a criminal justice uh, community me- uh, excuse, excuse me, a criminal justice committee meeting, and lawmakers then were discussing HB 1245. That's a bill that would give people on death row the option to choose a firing squad as a means of execution. And here's Paul Sherrill again, the Republican representative, offering a specific amendment to that bill. Could I put an amendment on that? It would include hanging by a tree also. And uh, and also, uh, I would like to sign on to your bill, sir. Of course, Tennessee has a very dark history of lynching. 
Now, Blaze, um, these were both from from one representative, Paul Sherrill, and I would say that like almost every governing body has its um, outlandish members, and and people say uh, really extreme things at times. But so, is this more indicative of what's happening with Sherrill, or what we're what you hear frequently in the state assembly? You know, I, w- I wouldn't want to attribute those things that he said to any other person. Um, but I think the the bigger part is that, you know, he wasn't gaveled out of order when he said those things. Uh, he did have to apologize for the hanging by a tree comment, but he still remained on committee throughout the session and was only taken off after the committee had already closed. Um, so he really uh, saw no punishment, no, no uh, punishment given to him until you know, after the case, um, and when many actions, uh, when Democrats speak out of order or say, uh, if they ever say outlandish things, they are quickly, um, gaveled down and their mics are cut. And so it, it's a, just a different treatment. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that, in, you know, uh, he, he says some more outlandish things than others, of course. Mm. Uh, but so, but what you're saying is when others say them, um, other Democrats in particular, they their mics are cut. And of course, as the nation knows, more recently we even had two representatives, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, expelled from the Tennessee House. Yes, that's correct. They um, went on the House floor, or they were on the House floor, and in, in the middle of, in between of bill hearings, they went towards the well, which is where you go to present bills. And they started essentially a protest from the floor, uh, chanting for gun legislation to be heard now. And they they did break the rules and they were instead of kicked off of committees or any of the other uh, punishments they could have been given. They went to the, you know, the most extreme, which is expelling the two members. Uh, but they are have been since reinstated. Um, so they still remain in their seats, although they do. They are up for a special election. Uh, this summer. Okay. Well, we have um, some tape here from uh, Justin Jones, again, one of the two representatives expelled from the legislature uh, last month. Um, here he is in April complaining um, that Republicans who control the Tennessee State Assembly apply rules and procedures selectively. Representative Jones. Mr. Speaker, you did not rule out Lamberth for making an attack saying that I need to go to rural counties, which had nothing to do with the, the question asked. But, but again, you inconsistently apply the rules. That is your purview. Out of order. Next member, Representative Pearson, you're recognized. So that was uh, Democrat Justin Jones being called out of order in April. And here's another clip. This is Democratic Representative Jason Powell again in the Tennessee House speaking with quite a bit of frustration last month about um, Republican rules and controlling floor debate in the Tennessee House. So here he is. I would ask, please, members, let us all debate this legislation. If both sides think are important, we should hear the debate. And that's, that's all I'll say. I was in the committee, and I talked to leadership about that, not being able to speak and to give my views. And yet again, we were silenced. I just want to make that point, Mr. Speaker, and I appreciate your consideration. So, Blaze, we've got about a minute left here with you. I mean, overall, how would you describe... Um, you know, what kind of democracy we see at work in the Tennessee State uh, Assembly? Because there's, you know, there's a difference between um, uh, a party running a running, you know, a house in particular in a way that just the opposition just doesn't like versus it being anti-democratic. Yeah, I mean, 
I think you can see in those clips, uh, definitely with the last one, Representative Jason Powell, he's, you know, really just asking nicely that they at least be able to debate the bills. Uh, the Republicans have a supermajority, so it doesn't really matter what the Democrats want to say on bills. They can still uh, the Republicans can still choose to pass it or not. But he's just saying, let our voices be heard. You know, we all represent 70,000 some odd, uh, you know, citizens, and they didn't elect us to come up here and sit silent. And so I think, you know, what you, what you see is the Republicans trying to, you know, just do what they'd like instead of allowing Democrats to at least be able to speak up. Mm, mm. Well, Blaze Ganey is political reporter for Nashville Public Radio with us today from Nashville. Blaze, thank you so much for helping us get started today. Not a problem. Thank you. All right. When we come back, we will hear from a Republican state representative in Tennessee. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about states as a laboratory of democracy and what kind of experiments some of those states are running with democracy right now. And we're focusing specifically on Tennessee. And joining us now from Brentwood, Tennessee, is Gino Bulso. He's Republican state representative who represents District 61. Representative Bulso, welcome to On Point. Thank you, Magna. I'd love to start with this question to kind of understand you a little bit more. Who are some of your political heroes, the, the lawmakers that are creating a, the kind of government that you'd like to see? Well, let me answer your question historically. I think uh, Ronald Reagan is certainly a political hero, uh, both of mine and of our citizens here in Tennessee. Obviously, uh, one of our great founders that hailed from uh, Braintree, Massachusetts, right there where your show is originating from, John Adams, I think is a, a wonderful example of someone who understands American democracy and stood for principles of freedom and liberty that our state and our country are founded on. So those are, are two historical examples. And uh, obviously, we've got on the uh, current scene, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, who's doing a wonderful job uh, managing that state and bringing it forward economically and expanding uh, liberties and freedoms across that state as well. Hmm. Well, so let's stick with Reagan and Adams um, for a moment here. So what, what specifically about uh, Ronald Reagan? Because he's, you know, he's got a, this long history uh, in American politics. Is, is there something you could point to in particular that you find per- inspiring? Two things, uh, Magna. One, uh, he, he, was a, he was a conservative. Uh, and that really is our political base here in Tennessee as well. I mean, conservatives 
are folks who respect the uh, moral and economic traditions of their ancestors and who understand that change in society is natural, it's inevitable, it's beneficial, but it needs to be brought forward in ways that are consistent with freedom and liberty. And then secondly, you know, President Reagan just had this way about him of uh, bringing people together uh, using his gift of humor, uh, his gift of communication, not to divide folks, but to bring them together. And those are two uh, features. Those are, are two characteristics that we sor- sorely lack in American politics today, unfortunately. Hmm. And what about John Adams in particular? What what has, did he do or say that you find inspiring? To me, uh, John Adams was a, a wonderful combination of someone who understood principles of freedom and democracy, but who also had a personal integrity and a personal virtue that was important to him. And from our perspective here in Tennessee, it really is the family that serves as the bedrock for our society and our civilization. And John Adams, with his personal virtue and the family that he led, uh, obviously including his son, John Quincy Adams, our our sixth president, and then later on his great-grandson, Henry Adams, was just someone who embodied the whole concept of what it means to be an American. And, and think back to the time that he defended those British soldiers that were involved in the Boston Massacre and how unpopular that was. Yet he had the fortitude uh, intellectually, academically, and otherwise to defend those soldiers, even though it was so unpopular in the community at the time. Those are all features, that kind of fortitude, that courage uh, that once again, we sorely are missing in our political debate today. Mm. Um, I'd also add in terms of uh, the uh, the heights that the Adams family reached, I'd include Abigail Adams, of course, John Adams' wife, who he uh, actually had quite heavily relied on for um, thoughts about wisdom and in, term- in the founding of this country. But it's interesting. You're right to point to um, uh, John Adams' defense of the British soldiers who, um, you know, opened fired, open fire on uh, on Bostonians in, in the Boston Massacre, because that would be John Adams um, standing up for the rights of everybody uh, in, you know, what was then not even the United, yet the United States. Um, everybody, regardless of whether they're popular or not, whether they're you know, accepted or not. So he believed in a fundamental civil rights for, for every person, well, every person in this country at that time. And, and so you, you'd say that that's something that you draw inspiration from now? I do, absolutely. And there are many current uh, historical and current and historical parallels to what uh, John Adams did. Uh, one of the comments that was made earlier in your program had to do with this thing called a democracy index that placed Tennessee dead last. And I don't know exactly what dynamics were making up that index, but that simply is not true. That's in fact, it's it's ridiculous because you judge the health of a democracy by how well the uh, government protects its citizens' freedoms and liberties and expands them where possible. And that includes economic liberty and economic freedom. And here in Tennessee, there is overwhelming economic freedom, which is one reason that Tennessee is such a magnet to folks all over the country. We're the second lowest tax state in the country. We've got almost no debt. Uh, and you know, just to take a, a parallel, and I love Massachusetts. I love Boston. I love Hanover Street. I love getting to Mike's Pastries. But Massachusetts is a state that has super majorities of Democrats 
in the general court, both in the House and in the Senate, but it also has the fourth highest rate of debt of all 50 states in the country. So if you're measuring democracy and you look at economic freedom and economic liberty, folks in Tennessee have a lot more liberty and uh, freedom with regard to their own money than they do in virtually any other place in the country. And there, there's also this comment about gerrymandering and that somehow in Tennessee, there's something going on here that's anti-democratic. Magna, as you know, this whole concept of gerrymandering started right there in Boston, where you are, with one of your former governors and one of our founders, Elbridge Jerry, who was both a vice president to James Madison and a governor in Massachusetts. And it was during his second term that there was this partisan redistricting of your state Senate. And that's how we got the term gerrymandering. They made some district look like a salamander. And so they took your governor uh, Jerry's name and put it next to uh, a salamander and came up with this concept of gerrymandering. Well, partisan redistricting has been going on since the very origin of, of our country, all the way back to the early 19th century. And so for someone to level a criticism at Tennessee that it's anti-democratic because it involves what someone considers to be gerrymandering is just simply ridiculous mm. because all over the country, we see redistricting going on that favors the party in power. That's not anti-democratic. That is the way it's been ever since the founding of our country, going back all the way to Elbridge Jerry, mm. who signed both our Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation, and who also was the one uh, representative at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, who did not support the Constitution until a Bill of Rights was attached to it, yeah, which so is the most... I'm sorry. So, so Representative, sorry to just jump in here. Um, sure. But, but you know, uh, it, it's interesting that you point to Massachusetts multiple times because I don't, actually don't disagree with you on that. I covered the Massachusetts State House for years. And mm -hmm. um, the downside to having single party rule is pretty clear, right? Because one of the things that goes away almost immediately is a true healthy debate of uh, differing ideas. And I don't think I'm not going to stand here in defense of gerrymandering anywhere by any party. So, I mean, your point's well taken there. But you talked about economic freedom. Um, I just want to go back to, uh, um, you know, the different forms of freedom that um, we value here in the United States, economic and, and, you know, civil and individual freedoms as well, because, you know, to go back to what happened uh, earlier or just not that long ago in the Tennessee House where you're a member of, we spoke, we talked earlier about how the House voted to expel representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Now, I was doing some research here about Tennessee history, and before the uh, expulsion of those two reps, there had only been three lawmaker expulsions in Tennessee since the Civil War, and they were for a representative who was convicted of accepting a bribe, another rep who allegedly had sex with an intern in his office, and then there was another senator who was convicted on federal fraud charges. So those that's the sort of level at which the Tennesseans ex expected uh, representatives to, to fall to in order to deserve expulsion. So here's what I'm wondering. I mean, y you've talked about... Um, John Adams in particular, and this idea of fundamental rights. And you're a big believer in the Bill of Rights. I mean, you've described yourself, I've seen, as a pro-life, pro-Second Amendment conservative. So why expel two fellow representatives for exercising their rights to the amendment that comes before the second one? The First Amendment right to speech. Why expel them for that? 
Well, the answer, Magna, is because they had no right to do what they did. I agree with those other expulsions that you've covered, but I also agreed that both of these representatives and a third who was uh, retained only by only one vote all deserved to be expelled because of what they had done. Never before in the in the history of our state, which goes all the way back to, to 1796, a period of 227 years, had anyone in the legislature actually uh, conducting a mutiny on the House floor where you break the Constitution, which forbids members from engaging in disorderly behavior, and you break the rules of the House, and you silence the voices of 96 other members by going up with a bullhorn and trying to incite a crowd. They had no right to do that. And what we did in Tennessee was to establish a precedent that if you as a representative, Republican or Democrat, take it upon yourself to violate our rules and to violate our constitution, you will be expelled. That is the perfect punishment for what they did. They were properly expelled. And if anyone does that again, while I'm in the General Assembly, I will be privileged to draft the resolution to expel them again, because that is not the type of conduct that we tolerate. It's not the type of respect that the institution deserves. And the idea that they had a right to do this is something I completely disagree with. And one of the representative, Justin Jones, whom you've quoted here earlier, is interesting because uh, on the floor of our house, he referred to one of our members, uh, Sabi Kumar, uh, whose family came from India, as a brown face. He called him a brown face of white supremacy, which is the only racial slur that I've heard anywhere in the General Assembly since I've been there. Yet, for some reason, the media just ignores the fact that Justin Jones himself is an avowed racist by calling one of our members a brown face and somehow acting like we as the Republican supermajority are racist because what we did was to defend our rules and defend our constitution. And I would gladly do it a second time, Magna, should, should the opportunity arise that we have representatives taking it upon mm. themselves to violate our constitution and to silence 96 other members. Well, so what's the difference between that and your fellow a member of the House saying that he wants to add lynching as a means for execution for death row inmates? Is that not also, you know, hearkening back to a racist history? Well, obviously, that's not a comment that any one of the others in the Democratic, excuse me, in our Republican caucus shares. Uh, and he was obviously in a committee meeting at the time. He wasn't on the floor of the House. Uh, do you think someone should be expelled from the House for making that type of an inappropriate comment in a committee, committee meeting? Perhaps. And someone perhaps could have drafted a resolution and we could have debated it. But I would not compare someone making that type of a remark in a committee meeting with three representatives conducting a mutiny on the House floor and trying to incite a riot, which had never happened before in the 227-year history of our state. Those two are not parallel in any respect. Mm. Well, Gino Bolso, rep uh, Republican state representative representing the District 61 uh, in Tennessee, joining us today from Brentwood. Representative Bulso, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Megna. It's been a pleasure. I'm Megna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Well, let's turn now to Sekou Franklin. He's a professor of political science at Middle Tennessee State University and author of many books, including Losing Power, African-Americans and Racial Polarization in Tennessee Politics. Professor Franklin, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, um, 
we will sort of refocus here on uh, the state of democracy in Tennessee here uh, in, in just a moment. But when um, Representative Bolso made mention of some of the comments uh, that were made um, by uh, by Representative Jones, I believe, it sounds like there's more to the, the story uh, that maybe I don't know. Do you have any additional details about that? Not really. I mean, that was part of an exchange that Representative Jones had with that lawmaker. But to say that Representative Jones is is a racist is is adamantly false. He, I've known him since he was a first year student at Fisk University, and his mentors are some of the acolo- um, prominent figures of the civil rights movement, including Diane Nash, and he himself um, has anchored his his activist work and his legislative work in in multiracial networks. Um, that are about about as diverse as one could imagine. And his district also is probably Nashville's most diverse district, um, both not just racially speaking, but also linguistically speaking as well, in terms Mm. of language, language of minorities. Mm. Now, we could spend the whole rest of the hour talking about those expulsions here, but they are one moment in what seems to be a pattern of moments that's drawn a lot of attention uh, to Tennessee, uh, Professor Franklin. So, I mean, I wonder how would you characterize what the state of uh, democracy is in Tennessee? Because you heard Representative Bulso say, well, a lot of the things that happen there have been happening since time immemorial, gerrymandering or the majority party's ability to exercise its control over procedure, um, et cetera. Is what's happening in Tennessee different than what has come before? Yeah, right now we're at a different period of time. I mean, there is a lack of democracy and there is a, a, an authoritarian streak that really is anchoring Tennessee, um, primarily anchored by a supermajority in the legislature. Um, and the supermajority of the legislature um, is the, the kind of one variable that's missing in the discussion is the political extremism that is really the the muscle behind the supermajority. Um, persons like Ronald Reagan, um, if he were alive today and were to run for uh, the state legislature probably couldn't get elected. Def- definitely John Adams couldn't get elected in Tennessee. Um, and even um, some of the uh, kind of uh, founding, uh, established kind of Republican Party leaders a decade or so ago, people like, you know, people in Tennessee know folks like Beth Harwell, uh, Senator Bill Frist, uh, Bob Corker. Those are persons that are the most prominent voices in the Republican Party. They probably could not get elected in the Tennessee state legislature today because the level of political extremism um, is so multi-layered in terms of what's guiding the the, the party. So, in, in in Tennessee, you know, what's different from Tennessee than say uh, Texas and and Florida is that in Texas and Florida, the the governors have uh, a muscular influence and they have kind of a, a publicly facing um, outsized kind of influence, uh, DeSantis and Abbott. Whereas in Tennessee, we kind of have a, an inverted. Um, uh, 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 process where the legislature has effectively more power um, and more kind of publicly facing power than this, than the governor does. The governor is almost secondary, and the legislature, in many respects, is is at the top of the mountain. Huh. Well, Professor Franklin, hang on for just a moment because when we come back, we're going to talk about some more, you know, actually specific actions that the Tennessee state legislature um, has taken that maybe folks didn't know about beyond the big big headline-grabbing ones and what that says about um, democracy in Tennessee. So that's what we'll do when we come back. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And this hour, we've talked a lot about the GOP supermajority in the Tennessee state uh, legislature. And I wanted to put some specific numbers around what we mean when we say supermajority. It's quite interesting, actually, because in Tennessee, over the past several years, both the Pew Research Center and Gallup have found that about 48 percent of folks in Tennessee say they're Republican or lean Republican. And about 36% of folks say they're Democrats or lean Democrats. So 48-36 split there, GOP and Democrats in Tennessee. In the legislature, though, the Tennessee House is 75% Republican, 25% Democrat. In the Tennessee Senate, it's 81% Republican and 19% Democrat. So again, compare that to the Tennessee electorate overall, which says it's 48% GOP, 36% Democrat. So that's what we mean when we say a GOP supermajority in Tennessee. Now, what has that led to in terms of laws and actions taken by the Tennessee state legislature? Well, for that, we turned to Sheila Clemens-Lee. In 2017, she became actively engaged in Tennessee politics after, after suffering a terrible personal tragedy. Six years ago, my son, Jacques Clemens, was shot three times in the back by a police officer by the name of Joshua Lippert. Jacquees supposedly had did a stop and roll at a stop sign. He pulled into a parking lot, and that's when Officer Lippert pulled in behind him, and Jacquees is walking towards Officer Lippert. Some words were exchanged, and the next thing I know, Jacquees is running. He ends up being shot three times in the back. Officer Lipper was saying that Jacquees had a gun. I know that he didn't have a gun. We went to the DA's office and District Attorney Glenn Funk told us that they were not going to charge Officer Lipper with Jacquees' death. He said that there were 
no fingerprints, no DNA on this so-called gun that Jacquees was supposed to have had. If you got the gun, why wasn't his fingerprints on it? Why wasn't his DNA on it? So we band together. We did a lot of town halls to educate people. We gave them the numbers of how many people had complaints and have been killed from police officers. So we started talking about getting a community oversight board. We went out, we walked the streets, we did everything. And the FOP, which is Fraternal Order of Police, they were trying to stop us every step of the way. So we got the signatures and on November 6th, we were able to go and vote on a community oversight board. And we won, the people won, the people of Nashville won. Not by a small margin, but by a large margin. Six years later, or five years later, after the board was established, we find out that the lawmakers are trying to do away with the Community Oversight Board. And this came right after the Tyree Nichols murder that happened in Memphis with police officers. So the lawmakers passed this bill and it is currently sitting on Governor Bill Lee's desk waiting to see if he's going to sign it or veto it. We were the ones who voted it in and I would think it would take the people to vote it out, not, not lawmakers. This has nothing to do with them. Sheila Clemens Lee. Well, Greta McLean was also active in that coalition which created the Community Oversight Board, which was supposed to oversee the Nashville police. And interestingly, Greta herself served on the Nashville police force from 1991 until 2000. She was a detective in the Adult Sex Crimes Unit, and she says while there, she saw fellow officers ignore credible rape claims, And she saw cases of sexual harassment and rape within the police department itself. Remember, she was a member of the Nashville police. So she left and ended up joining this coalition for the Community Oversight Board. So Greta McLean tells us she's frustrated that the supermajority in her state rejected what the people in Nashville had called for. Sadly, our state legislature has decided that the will of the people who voted overwhelmingly for community oversight boards in our communities, the legislature has decided that they don't care what the people want, that they are going to abolish those community oversight boards and set up their own form of accountability. To me, that is not democracy. That is not representing the people that you were elected to represent. Both the Senate and the House here in Tennessee passed it, and we're just waiting to see whether the governor signs it or not. Greta McLean, a former member of the Nashville Police Department. Professor Seku Franklin, how do you explain what happened here with the Community Oversight Board? Well, it's quite devastating. I, I also worked on that 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 uh, coalition, and it's 134,000 people who voted for that. And after a very you know highly contentious year and a half campaign. And um, the legislation was introduced 
um, in the same week that the Tyree Nichols video was released. And it also um, undermines, basically abolishes the Civilian Review Board of Memphis. So, but what it really uh, exemplifies is a broader kind of preemptive attack that's used by the state legislature and that's been used for the last decade to overturn a series of local laws regarding living wage, um, LGBTQ plus issues. Um, more recently, this legislative session, the legislature um, is basically taking over Nashville's airport authority. Um, they're on a steady march to take over Nashville's sports authority. Uh, they eliminated Nashville's tourist development district, which um, amounts to losing you know, millions of dollars worth of revenue. And um, it represents really a broader attempt by the state legislature going back at least a decade to preempt local local laws passed and really to target uh, the most diverse cities, more specifically Nashville and Memphis, and also the cities with the largest numbers of African-Americans. Hmm. Um, so it's quite devastating. So, I mean, tell me more specifically, what do you th- see as the motivation from the supermajority in, in the Tennessee legislature for doing these things or overturning local will? Well, I think the motivation is they may see the, these cities as uh, out of control, um, as being as needing to be disciplined. There is a retribution politics that's central to this. In the case of Nashville in particular, um, Nashville City Council, Metro Council, uh, decided to reject the Republican National Convention's um, attempt to come to, to Nashville in 2024. So the state legislature engaged in a a broader retribution uh, campaign um, in targeting the Sports Authority, Airport Authority. And they also passed a bill uh, cutting our city council, or we call it the Metro Council in Nashville, in half um, and giving Nashville council less than two months to draw new districts. Fortunately, the courts intervened in that respect. So part of it is a retribution politics. Part of it also is that in these local fights, particularly around economic justice issues such as wages and policing, what happens is that if the opposition loses, um, let's say, for example, if the business community loses or if the return order of police loses, then they have another avenue to overturn local democracy efforts. And oftentimes through back channels and kind of off the grid moves, they oftentimes will form alliances with lawmakers to overturn um, local laws that are supported by the majority of the people. So there's many different reasons for this um, as to why uh, preemption and that and Tennessee's not the only 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 uh, state that is experiencing preemption. We're finding that this this to be the case in, in many red states, particularly in the South, particularly in the South. Mm. You know, obviously, race is a major part of um, the the issue here. But in addition, I've I've read, you know, we talked with uh, Professor uh, Grombach uh, uh, much earlier in the hour, and, and he found that Democratic backsliding in the states was was not necessarily uh, correlated one-to-one with uh, increasing diversity in some of those states. I mean, is there, um, is there more to what's happening in Tennessee beyond, um, I mean, obviously the, the clear racial issues that you've been talking about? I mean, race is a part of it, but race is... is... Race may be a significant factor, but there are other factors, too, as well. Um, so w- one example is that where in Tennessee, where Republicans have really built a supermajority, um, 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 are places where that are lily white, but there are also rural communities that are largely insulated. And um, what lawmakers can run in those do in those particular areas is run what some call segregated campaigns. Um, but these are also areas and parts of rural Tennessee that are also um, in economically uh, uh, distressed um, communities as well. So 
oftentimes race is part of it, but it's not the uh, only part of it. It's it's uh, uh, geography um, here in Tennessee in particular uh, for African-Americans. African-Americans are concentrated in maybe three or four areas throughout the state. Um, so in those other areas throughout the state, then then um, the supermajority Republicans in particular can build out a, a surplus of voters um, or a constant supply of voters that can insulate them. Um, even when there's a national attention focusing on democracy, they're particularly insulated from uh, attacks unless mm-hmm. unless and then and then and then and then also um, there there was, I would say, beginning about 15 years ago in some of the interviews that I that I, I that we did for our for our research, some concern among Democrats that um, that they weren't developing candidates, younger candidates to challenge um, Republicans in these areas as well. Yeah. So there was some also concern about fragmentation inside of the Democratic Party as well. Well, I understand, and just just briefly, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you've also worked with um, sort of uh, economically struggling white communities in Tennessee who actually have shared interests with, um, uh, for example, some of the the black communities that you talked about. But but even these white communities have had have had difficulty gain, gaining traction regarding their concerns in the in the state assembly. One hundred percent. I mean, right now in Tennessee, about forty five percent of of rural hospitals are 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 at risk of closure, and many of these rural hospitals is, are in white communities. Um, some of the work that some of us have were engaged in around ten care around the health Medicaid expansion and whether or not we can get. Medicaid in the state and expand it to communities. That effort was partly led by rural white working class residents um, who led, basically led a petition campaign and they garnered 250,000 petitions, delivered them to the governor. And when the governor was on the verge of creating a, a Medicaid-like program under Obamacare, the legislature came in and told the governor that he couldn't do that and basically passed a law that said that no kind of, no, no program like that could be created without our approval. So yeah, uh, th- there's a history in Tennessee of of, of white working class residents, although um, overshadowed by the larger racial story, there's mm-hmm. a history of white working class residents working on uh, labor rights, workers' rights. So there is that part of the, the narrative in Tennessee, but those persons are often overshadowed in these communities and partly overshadowed also by the narrative of of, of Tennessee is like Nashville and Memphis versus everybody else or everybody else versus Nashville yeah. and Memphis. But it's a larger, complicated story as well mm-hmm. in Tennessee. Well... So, you know, one thing that uh, stands out to me is that we're talking about, uh, you know, a state legislature or a state assembly that was elected, right? So, I mean, you can make the argument that um, that what we're seeing here with the supermajority and um, perhaps the, Demo- the Democratic backsliding is a result of people who, you know, who are bringing their ideas into office. And maybe for, if for folks who don't like those ideas, they need to start, I don't know, even a decades-long effort uh, to get their folks in office. I mean, that's a discussion for another day, but, you know, are there options still within uh, how democracies are supposed to work? But I wanted to end our conversation, Professor Franklin, with something that you have noted before. And because, like, I keep asking myself, well, people outside of Tennessee, why would they care what's happening in Tennessee? And you say that Tennessee is an example of um, the construction of a sub-national government. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and I and I got that term from someone else who I don't know. I just saw it. But yeah, it's basically what what the what the supermajority has done is they they're they're making the argument that they can create a a governing infrastructure along with other red states um that can push back against the federal government. So in Tennessee, for example, our state legislature has said 
we don't want HIV AIDS funding. Uh, we don't want maybe f- they're, they're considering possibly rejecting over $1 billion worth of federal aid. We don't want um, uh, Medicaid expansion that would have brought $20 billion into this state. So they're pushing up against the federal government, and they're also pushing down against um, multiracial cities or cities that are that are quite diverse. And in doing that, we're finding this to be the case not just in Tennessee, but Florida, Texas, and it's almost a network process in which state legislatures that are controlled by supermajorities along with governors are doing this uh, probably in lockstep with each other, probably as part of a larger strategy to say that, look, it, it doesn't matter who becomes president of the United States, um, but we can create this kind of subnational process. And also the backdrop of this are two things, if I have enough time to say this, the backdrop of this is, number one, you have a federal courts system that's much more conservative and the federal courts are insulating state legislatures when they make these decisions if they're challenged constitutionally in the federal court process. But I will say with Tennessee, what's also unique and different is that on the bureaucracy side, our constitutional officers, unlike Florida and Texas, our Secretary of State, our Comptroller General's Office, our Attorney General's Office, they are not elected, they're appointed. And the state legislature has the muscular power in that appointment process. And those entities are also working to, at least from our research and from my perspective, to undermine democracy as well. But yes, that's, that's what's, what's going on, what's going on right now. So some of the lawmakers are like, we don't care if, we don't care if, if the exposure crisis is on CNN or MSNBC or the New York Times or it's a national story, right? Because why? Because we're insulated in these districts that are overwhelmingly white, um, in which there's very little traction in these districts. And also we're linking up with, other lawmakers in similar positions, and I'll say this as my, my, my last comment, that's why um, after the expulsion crisis, there was an audio leak of the Republican caucus talking about the expulsion. And one of the lawmakers, Representative Scott Sapecki, said, in Tennessee, we have, to stand, we have to stand our ground. As Tennessee goes, so does the Southeast. And so what they saw is basically Tennessee being a bulwark um, in this kind of subnational process for advancing their viewpoints, along with other southeastern states and red states, against against the larger encroachment of of civil rights and, and, and democracy, and also the federal government. Well, Seku Franklin, professor of political science at Middle Tennessee State University and author of Losing Power and After the Rebellion, as well. Professor Franklin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is on point. <laughs> 